God, we praise you for your love and your wisdom and your justice and your might. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. We're grateful, God, for your incredible mercy towards us and thankful that we get to have this time in your word now. We pray your blessing on it and uh, for all those who are here, pray that your voice would speak to each of our hearts and to those who are listening online as well. We lift this time up to you, God, for you are worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7, we're going to finish this text of Scripture this morning. And as you're turning there, I will inform you that for the last 200 years or so, geology, which is the science that deals with the history of the earth and its life, especially as recorded in rocks, Geology has been attaching long ages, okay, billions of years, to the geological column and has been using those long ages as proof for evolution. Henry Morris, who is a good biblical scholar, he writes, The rocks and fossils in the geologic column have become the Bible of evolutionary thought. They are claimed to be hard evidence for the long ages of naturalistic development, and they are supplemented by the more recent developments of radiometric dating, end quote. Once again, when it comes to the questions of creation and the universe and the earth and the flood, we are faced with the question of authority. Okay, who is our authority? Will we prioritize what God's word says as our first and final authority, or will we prioritize what the community of science says? And again, I don't ever want to pit legitimate science against the Bible. I have no doubts whatsoever that the Bible will always confirm what real science discovers about the natural world. Put it another way, legitimate science will always affirm what the Bible states. But when it comes to the possible theories of man and men of scientific theory versus the word of God, we as Christians must always prioritize the authority of Scripture. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is our sermon series that we've been going through the last while, God spends about three chapters Three of those chapters out of 11 on the flood, okay, chapter 6 through 8. That's a lot of text. And just like any other topic, all study of the flood needs to begin with the biblical record. Okay, rather than, again, certain interpretations of the geological record and what pervading science says. Okay, too many start off with the assumptions of what the geologists say and what the so-called science says, rather than scripture. I love what my Hebrew professor in seminary said, Dr. William Barrick. He writes, quote, careful analysis of the record in Genesis 6 through 8, which is the flood narrative, should be the only basis upon which anyone considers potential geologic implications. However, in spite of the revelatory nature of the biblical record, 
many evangelical scholars continue to give up valuable ground to secular scientists and liberal biblical critics. Evangelicals too often attempt to baptize secular and humanistic theories in evangelical waters without realizing that those theories and their methodologies have never been converted. Above all else, the evangelical exegete and expositor, that's me, that's us, must accept the Old Testament text as the inerrant and authoritative word of God. And listen to this last part. Adhering consistently to this declaration of faith will require an equal admission of one's own ignorance and of one's inability to resolve every problem. Our ignorance, however, should never become the excuse for compromising the integrity of the Bible. End quote and amen to that. For part of our time today, I want to point out from the text that we've already been studying uh, since Genesis chapter 6, why we believe that the flood was worldwide, okay, global rather than local. And I think it's important. I haven't spent a whole lot of time on that, so um, we're going to do that today. There's many within evangelicalism who believe and teach the old earth view, right, billions and billions of years old, and they promote theistic evolution. And so, not surprisingly with that, they also teach that the flood was local, or regional, okay, that this flood that's described in, in Genesis in the Bible was only affecting Noah's area, Noah's region where he lived, his part of the world. Again, as faithful Christians, we must prioritize the biblical record of this event as our authority. Speaking of Henry Morris, who was a young earth creationist, faithful biblical scholar, he actually lists 100 arguments for a worldwide flood in the appendix of his book called The Genesis Record. A hundred. And we're not going to list all of those hundred today. Dr. Barak, though, my Hebrew professor, he has presented 22 reasons from the text in Genesis, of which I've summarized and I've whittled them down to what I think are the most pertinent ones. So I'll be sharing a dozen of them, Okay, 12 of those biblical evidences for a worldwide flood as we get into this morning's text. But in doing that, I do not want us to lose the primary point of our passage today, which is going to be on the screen in a second. But the big idea of today's passage is that God delivers on his promise to destroy and to save. If you want to jot that down, you can do it. It overlaps some with um, last week's sermon text and sermon message. God delivers on his promises to destroy and to save. And I've titled this Catastrophe Part 4 text uh, sermon title for today is Sinners in the Hands of a Just, Gracious God. It's a play off of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon title, Jesus in the Hands of an Angry God. I've I've entitled it Sinners in the Hands of a Just, Gracious God. All right. Um, So our text today is Genesis chapter seven, starting in verse 17. And we're going down to chapter eight, verse one. And I'm going to read it for us. And if you are able to stand with me, I'll ask you to do that one more time. Genesis seven, starting in verse 17. And we're going to go to chapter eight, verse one. This is the word of God. 
Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. Verse 21, all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Please be seated. So once again, not in your bulletin, but on the screen, uh, we have two main points. And the first point um, and it covers the, the whole passage for today, pretty much, um, is that God's demonstration of justice and wrath is utterly devastating and terrifying. Okay, God's demonstration of his justice and wrath is utterly devastating and terrifying. So before we get into our particular passage today, like I said, we are going to... Um, go over some of those biblical evidences, rewinding back to Genesis chapter 6, of a worldwide flood. And um, I would say that our verses today, starting in chapter 7, verse 17, is probably the clearest uh, about the global nature of the flood. Um, but even before, there's several indicators which I think are important to, for us to look at. So if you turn your eyes back to chapter 6, Verse 5 through 7, um, this is our first biblical evidence for a worldwide flood. And it reveals in those verses that God intended to destroy all mankind. Okay, all mankind, it says there. Um, that's what he tells, that's what he says, right? Uh, I'm sorry that I have made them. I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the earth. Okay, so uh, putting that together with verses 11 and 12, this indicates a global situation involving all man rather than referring to just people of a certain region. Okay, and he even says all the animals, right? So um, Dr. Barrick helpfully says, the judgment must be as extensive as the corruption of mankind. Okay, the judgment must be as extensive as the corruption, as the evil of mankind. As understated as that sounds, it's true. And it supports our theme for such a catastrophe. God delivers on his promise to destroy. See, he described the utter corruption of all mankind, saying in verse 5, 
He saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he describes it, and so his judgment extends to everyone everywhere. Okay? So that's the first biblical evidence. The second one in verse 7. Um, verse 7 says, I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky. Okay, so the second thing from verse 7 is that it expressly mentions that even the birds will be destroyed. And birds, as we know, can fly from one area to another. Um, and so God says he's going to blot out all of them from the face of the earth, okay, except for the ones on the ark. So this detail about birds is repeated in verse 7 and in chapter 7, verse 3 and chapter 7, verse 14. So it's not just one area uh, where he's going to destroy the birds and then all the others are, are kept alive or that they can just fly away from it. Right. So that's the second biblical evidence. The third one is in verse 13 of chapter six. And it's read in context with verse seven, which I already read. But in verse 13, God's declaration includes not only the end of all flesh, but the destruction of the earth itself. Verse 13, he says, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So even though the animals were not involved in mankind's corruption, they did suffer the natural consequences of mankind's sinful behavior. So we made the point several sermons ago that mankind's sin has cosmic consequences, and especially particularly in this time. So it wasn't just one part of the earth or some of the animals were going to be destroyed due to mankind's sin, but it says all flesh. Okay? So uh, number four, fourth biblical evidence, verse 15, the size of the ark. Okay, the size of the ark makes it one of the largest wooden ships of all time. Okay, uh, a mid-sized cargo ship by today's standards, if you can just imagine one of those princess cruise ships. Um, a local flood would not require such a huge ship or maybe any ship at all. A ship the size of this biblical ark intentionally meets all the needs for the people inside and the thousands of animals that were going to survive there for a long period of time. A local flood would require something that was a lot more modest, okay, a much smaller ship, maybe not even a ship again, a, a riverine cattle barge or something just to float and... Um, which is uh, described by authors like Robert Best that describes like the Gilgamesh epic, which is an ancient local flood story. And so um, that's another thing, the size of the ark. Fifth biblical evidence is verse 17. The Hebrew word for floodwaters, which is Mabul, it bears a very much similarity to this Akkadian term, Abubu, that is employed in the Babylonian legend of a flood. But the scriptures use that Hebrew word to denote an unparalleled cataclysmic event. Okay? That is a, a unique catastrophe, unlike any other. Okay? Unequaled devastation, um, which is God's judgment here, which he's talking about. Okay, so um, moving on to the next one, the sixth biblical evidence for a worldwide flood is the rest of Genesis treats these eight people who survived, which in verse 18 of chapter 6, um, it says, God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Eight people, right? The, 
the rest of Genesis treats those eight people as the ones who will be the progenitors of the post-flood world. Okay, not just the ancestors of a localized population. If you skip over to chapter 9, verse 19, it says, this is after the flood, right? These three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were the sons of Noah, and from these, the whole earth was populated. Okay, not just the region where Noah lived. The whole earth came from those three sons, Noah's, Noah and his family. And uh, chapters 10 and 11, which we'll get to eventually, describes the table of the nations. This is the nations of the whole earth. Okay, So um, that's the sixth evidence. Number seven is in chapter 7 now, verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 3 says that the purpose for the ark and the housing of all the creatures uh, to be brought into it is to keep offspring, literally to keep seed alive on the face of all the earth. It is so that the species or genus of animals would be repopulated after the flood. So what's the point if only the animals in Noah's local region were killed? Okay? There'd be plenty of other animals all over the planet, right? So Henry Morris rightly reasons that, quote, the stated purpose was, of course, valid if the flood was to be universal, but irrelevant if the flood were local, end quote. Number eight, and this is a very simple one, the next verse in chapter seven, verse four. He says, I will blot out every living thing that I have made. It clearly uh, in reference to all creation, everything that I have made, God says. And so this is global in its outlook. Most straightforward one of all, I think. Um, and then verse 11, we're almost to our text today now. And this is the ninth biblical evidence for a world, worldwide flood. Verse 11, it says, all the fountains of the great deep. Okay, that phrase would seem very much out of place for a mere local or regional flood. The great deep speaks of the oceans all around the globe, the seas and the water all around the globe, all the fountains of the great deep. And so commentator Kenneth Matthews concludes by saying, quote, there can be no dispute that the narrative depicts the flood in the language of a universal deluge, end quote. Okay, so those are just nine biblical evidences from the passages that we've looked at so far. And um, some of those I, I've mentioned as we've gone along. But this brings us to today's text where there's a few more that we should not miss. But more importantly, we should not miss the point. Okay, God's demonstration of justice and wrath is utterly devastating and terrifying. And so verses 17 and 18 starts today's text. As God promised, the floods and the rains came down, lasting 40 days, just as he said. Almost unimaginable, this great torrent, this deluge coming down from the sky, and also waters coming from way beneath the earth, exploding up in hot fountains, for 40 days and nights straight, intense waves of catastrophic damage. Okay, it's really like a, a, an undoing of creation, an undoing of God's creation. And such devastation, as I said, is God demonstrating his justice and wrath upon sinful man. And we said it last Sunday, there's nothing more terrifying for unrepentant sinners than to fall into the hands of the living God. For those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord today, I want to implore you, 
Okay, whatever fears you have in life, there's nothing more fearful than to be on the receiving end of God's judgment. Okay, it says here that the waters increased greatly. They were overwhelmingly mighty. And verse 19 and 20 says that they prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. And here we see, once again, the universal language of a global flood. This passage that we're looking at today is even more frequent and explicit as far as the the phrases and words go. The earth, again, all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens, that might be the most clear of any phrase so far, all everywhere under the heavens. It's not just some mountains, but all the mountains everywhere in general, which leads to our 10th biblical evidence for a worldwide flood. Okay, the account here claims that the waters prevailed exceedingly and covered all the high hills under the whole heaven, verse 19, and surged yet another 15 cubits above that, verse 20. So even the highest mountains, listen to this, even the highest mountains of the earth were submerged. Okay, 15 cubits, that's like 22 and a half feet. Right? The highest mountains were 22 and a half feet under water at this time. Again, Henry Morse is very helpful. He says, quote, all the mountains under the whole heaven were inundated under at least 15 cubits of water, telling us that the ark could float freely over all the mountains. What a picture, right? These would include the mountains of Ararat, the highest peak of which reaches 17,000 feet. All to end quote. All to say, a 17,000 foot flood is not a local flood. Impossible. Okay, and to our bigger point, this is truly devastating and truly terrifying to think about. It's scary enough when we see and read about just various hurricanes and flooded areas in the news where cars and properties and and people are, are drifting down and being swept away in this powerful current of water. Um, 2005 was Hurricane Katrina. It was estimated that 80% of the city of New Orleans was underwater. Okay, 80% of the whole city. And that was only 15 to 20 feet in some places. Right? Major damage, major loss. It affected 15 million people in various ways. Uh, the year before that, one of the worst and massive tsunamis in, in history 2004 in Indonesia and Thailand and uh, Sri Lanka area. Waves up to 100 feet high, killing almost 250,000 people. Um, And I I just bring these before you because compared to the flood, those were, were tiny, like microscopic events that happened on the earth. So obviously, we're not glad that the flood in Noah's day was global and universal and worldwide, but we're seeing it extremely clearly from the text, I hope. And it's really petrifying to stop and to consider that this is God's rightful wrath against sinful man. Verse 21, it gives us the results of this flood. Okay, The, the results is, is worldwide destruction. Okay, this was and is unparalleled, unrivaled, unequaled catastrophe, devastation and destruction. Literally everything that had breath perished. It says all flesh that moved on the earth, every swarming thing 
upon the earth. All mankind, all is used three times uh, in this, this passage. And it gives us biblical evidence, number 11 out of 12, for the worldwide flood. Okay, clearly, this, these verses speak of the death toll among living creatures. Um, in catastrophic terms, all flesh died. The first mentioned to die are the birds there in verse 21. And the final group is every man. Okay, the life forms are listed in order, closely related to their order of creation. And in case the reader misunderstands the author's intent, he makes it even more specific in verse 22, right? All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. In case that wasn't clear enough, the author adds more detailed declaration in verse 23. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky. There's no category that escaped God's judgment. And it says, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left. So listen, the, the death toll was in the millions, if not billions. It's hardly imaginable. Okay, I don't know what the scene was exactly like on that dreadful day where crowds of people banging desperately on the door of the ark after God shut it when they realized that everything Noah said was coming to, to play when the sky suddenly poured down sheets of water and the ground cracked and gushed forth with exploding fountains where people wailing and screaming, asking to be let in, were they shouting and crying out for Noah to open up, open up, let me in? Was it so sudden that they didn't, they didn't even have a chance, chance to say that? Were untold numbers of bodies just slamming up against the sides of the ark, swept up in waves of water being pummeled to death, along with all the animals and trees and debris of all kinds. The bottom line is each one of them received justice from God. And I want us to understand what the definition of justice is. Simply, it's receiving what one deserves. That's all that justice is. To receive what is deserved. This is what they earned, in fact. And again, Jesus said that Until the flood arrived, life was going on as normal for all these people. For some of them in the world, in Noah's 600th year, on that second month, on that 17th day, it was their wedding day. You might um, not know this, but there's even today there's over 5,000 weddings per day in the United States alone. So for some, they were getting married. For others, they were making plans for a future wedding day. Others were celebrating their birthday that very day. Others were working in the field. Some were working in their homes. Some were eating a meal. Others were cooking to prepare a meal. Some were playing music. Some were listening to music. Surely many of this wicked generation that God describes in Genesis 6 were doing wicked things that very day. Fornication, adultery, abuse, abduction, kidnapping, drunken partying, senseless violence, acts of malice and murder, executions. Whatever any of them were doing on that second second month, 17th day, all of them died in that great flood. Okay, However nice and kind some of them might have been, 
or however vicious and cruel others of them might have been, every single one of them perished. They all received justice from God. The wages of sin is what? Death. And the soul who sins will die. Each of those people outside of the ark perished in their evil ways and in their unbelief in the true and living God. And God unleashed his wrath upon them and the whole creation. That's the sobering reality and truth of God's judgment. It's devastating and it's terrifying. So I I wanted to make sure that we're understanding the, the magnitude of this catastrophe. And for those today, again, who are not believers in Jesus Christ, do you not see the danger that you are in? Do you not understand that God promises eternal damnation for all who continue to reject the only Savior of the world? God always delivers on his promises to destroy and to save. Fellow believers, knowing of God's fierce wrath and fierce judgment against sinners, are you not compelled all the more this morning to evangelize the lost around you? Maybe they're your family members. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they're your neighbors. Don't just assume that they know the gospel because they grew up in church. Explain it to them. Share Christ with them. Love them. Love their eternal souls. Don't care about just what happens to them on this earth. Care about what happens to their souls for eternity. Implore them and invite them to come to Jesus. Verse 24 gives us the twelfth and final for today biblical evidence for a worldwide flood as we kind of go back and forth with these two purposes for our message today. The twelfth and final evidence for a worldwide flood is in verse 24. The flood waters dominated the landscape of the earth for 150 days before beginning to decrease. And that's... Um, That speaks of a worldwide flood and not a local one. Why is that? Because 150 days is a long time, folks. Okay? Do the quick math. It's five months uh, for the any area to be in a flooded condition. And by the way, it's understood that the the 40 days of rain that God promised were part of that 150 days. So there's 40 days of of rain, day and night, um, and waters coming from below, and then. 110 more days of flooding with the downpour and the uppour being restrained. So during this five-month period, the whole earth has undergone seismic destruction and cataclysmic changes, the general landscape still underwater. Um, Even the greatest of modern floods, like those in Bangladesh and elsewhere, rarely dominate the landscape for more than a few days before rapidly draining off the land. Five full months is a long period of time to maintain floodwaters in a confined area. And those ancient flood legends have only like seven days and nights um, in their stories. And then the sun comes out and everything dissipates. So five months, that's our final biblical evidence uh, for today for a worldwide flood. All right, so this gets us into our second and much shorter point. Um, the first one was that God's demonstration of justice and wrath is truly 
truly terrifying and devastating. But the second point is God's display of grace and faithfulness is supremely comforting and reassuring. And this is where I want to land today. God's display of grace and faithfulness is supremely comforting and reassuring. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And, of course, it's not as if God forgot about Noah, then suddenly remembered, oh, yes, that one righteous guy and his family, they're still in that ark. Um, Yeah, I told him to build that ark, and now he's in it with all those animals. No. Um, Here's the explanation. But God remembered is using human language to describe God's purposeful action in accordance with his earlier promise to Noah. Hey, God remembers describes, God remembered describes his purposeful action in accordance with his earlier promise to Noah. God was obviously aware as the flood waters were rising, Noah and his family were all in the ark, floating above those waters, right? Those previous verses uh, in the beginning of our passage today, chapter 7, the waters kept rising. The, it says the ark stayed atop the surface of the incredible heights of that flood. Okay, 100 feet by 200, 300, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000. The ark kept floating above, 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 above the mountains of Ararat, 17,000 feet above. Okay, by the way, there was no rudder on the ark because okay, its purpose was not to travel. It didn't have to navigate from this point to that point anywhere. Its purpose was just to stay afloat, to not capsize, and to withstand the devastation of this flood. God designed it that way to its rectangular-like shape, to its exact measurements, which we've been over, right? 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet up. Um, By the way, this worship center that we are in right now, from baptismal wall to back wall, is roughly 80 feet. 80 feet. Dave, correct me if I'm wrong. But 80 feet, I I actually kind of measured it with my my own feet um, this week. So 80 feet, which is... You know, the, the ark then was roughly six times longer than this worship center. Okay? Just to give you an idea. So the truth is, in that long wooden box, God was keeping Noah and his family and all the animals safe in his hands. He will hold me fast, right? For the entirety of the flood, from the moment it started, through all 150 days, every intense and scary and terrifying day and night for the first 40 and all the 110 days afterwards. In that vessel, God was with them, preserving them that whole time. God remembered Noah. Okay, this, is, this is covenant language, covenant, promise, oath, solemn oath, referring to God's faithfulness to bring to pass his promise to save. He did promise to destroy and he promised to save It means that God is taking action now. That's what it means when it says God remembered Noah. He's taking action now to start to make the earth suitable again for the inhabitants of the ark and for their descendants after. The flood waters were great. God did destroy the entire human race and every living thing on earth like he said he would. And now it was time for him to enact his promise to rescue And it begins the process of replenishment and resetting of all life on earth. So going back to verse 23, once again, in chapter 
7, it says, Only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. And so, to my second point, the second point of our sermon today, even when just one sinner receives favor, okay, rather than justice, we ought to be amazed. God's display of grace and faithfulness is supremely comforting, supremely reassuring, incredibly amazing. This verse ensures that the reader knows, that we know, God has kept his word to Noah. Noah's still alive. He's still in there. The line of the seed of the promise will continue from those who are safe in the ark with Noah. The second part of verse 1 of chapter 8 says, And God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. I imagine that was quite the strong wind that God brought upon the earth to make the waters start to recede. Okay, God's faithful action resulting from his word to Noah, again, is such a clear display of his grace, his trustworthiness, and we can find that much comfort and assurance. Okay, God does not sleep nor slumber. He preserves his people. He's loyal to his own word. He is a covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. That's his name. I love Psalm 121, verses 5 through 8. Listen to this. It says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Such a price. Talk about supremely comforting and assuring. And then Psalm 29, which Pastor Bill read for us today, verses 10 and 11 says, The Lord sat as king at the flood. The psalmist is writing, David, in in this case, is writing about this historic flood uh, that happened in Noah's time. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And the ultimate peace and comfort and assurance, of course, comes from knowing that we've been eternally forgiven of all our sins by the person and work of Jesus Christ. What amazing grace it is when even one sinner finds salvation, everlasting life through faith in the Lord Jesus. The heavens rejoice when one sinner repents, as should we. We want to transition into our time at the Lord's table and God's grace and faithfulness is what I want us to see as we do that. Because we've spoken a lot about God's judgment, right? About God's wrath, about his holy hatred for unrepentant, sinful people, his fury against all manifestations of sin, which was especially widespread during Noah's day, but is also very rampant even in our day. All those thousands of years ago, about 4,500 years ago, God judged the whole world. Okay, it was literally the end of civilization. Okay, somebody said there's been like 270 civilizations from the history of creation till now. And um, they've all been destroyed. They've all gone down. But this, this was the uncreation of God's creation. Okay, to deal with the chaos of sin, God returned the earth to chaos. But in his kindness, he restores order. 
And this is the restart, the renewal of creation, which we're going to start to see uh, in the next couple Sundays. But once again, let us understand this morning, okay, as we consider the unbelievable death toll, all those billions of unbelieving sinners living their own way, many, I'm sure, would say that they were good people. I'm a good person. Maybe a lot of them would have said, I'm, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Maybe some would say that, yeah, I, I believe in God, but it's a God of their own image, a God of their own comfort level. Maybe that's some of you this morning. And you say you believe in God, but it's, it's God that you've made up in your own mind, someone who's not the God of the Bible. These all received what they had coming, which was terrifying justice from their creator. But as we approach the Lord's table today, let us deeply consider the grace and faithfulness of God and that light views of sin give slight views of the sacrifice of Calvary and of the need for propitiation and of the dread future penalty on willful wrongdoing. God rescuing Noah and the ark proclaims once again the marvelous news of God's grace and love for his people. The truth and beauty of the gospel is that God's offer of eternal life to sinners is realized on the cross where the Son of God takes the judgment in place of sinners who deserved it. He takes it upon himself rather than sinful humanity taking it. Justice and love kiss at the cross. And so we are remembering our Savior, our Lord Jesus, this day as we should every day, every Lord's Day, but in particular, as we obey his command, his ordinance to observe communion, we, we especially remember and celebrate the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus is our ark of salvation, and we want to remember and celebrate that now. So let's take a few moments to consider all that we've heard today. And maybe even take stock of our our week, our last night or this morning. And um, as I like to do, give uh, just a few moments uh, for you to come before the Lord because we want to come prepared uh, to receive the elements today and not take it in a careless manner. And so um, let us think about what we've heard today and uh, take a few moments and then I'll pray and we begin the process of uh, communion.